All right, join me in Acts 27. Acts 27, let's pray. Father, we come this morning confessing that we are distracted by the world's cares. We don't love you or your word as we ought, uh, nor do we come to it with any sense of anticipation to the degree that we should. Lord, Lord, we do believe, so help our unbelief. Grant by the power of your Spirit a willing and attentive mind and heart and hands and refresh us, we pray, by the word of your promise and encourage us that whatever we may be going through, all will be done exactly as you have promised and planned. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Maybe my radar's off a little bit, but I get the sense that there's a collective weariness among us. I feel it. Maybe it's the weather um, going back to cold. Maybe it's just a confluence of of uh, trials, whatever it is. But I trust and I hope that uh, it may seem counterintuitive at first that this grand adventure in the sea might be encouraging to us. But indeed, I believe it will be. Um, So this is really a fascinating and exciting passage, this sea adventure. Um, And, of course, these stories were popular then and they remain so now. And the sea is a source of endless fascination and and fear and adventure. It is terrifying. Uh, If I had the opportunity to, to go on a hunting trip to New Zealand or a ministry opportunity, I would go but I wouldn't be happy about the journey across the Pacific Ocean. The idea that even however small that that we could end up there with miles of water beneath and all around is just gives me the heebie-jeebies. I I don't like that. The water is terrifying. But that's what makes sea travel so intriguing. Um, Luke devotes a large portion of his story here to this story about five percent of acts is this story it's about the size of titus and so it must be significant in his mind and more than just a good story but something meaningful to us Um, so my plan today that is a little bit different i have given you a map because there's a lot of geography in this story and also because it's a large passage i think my plan is to eat the elephant one bite at a time read some discuss it and so on and then conclude with some uh points of application and so um we will jump in at verse one and begin reading there And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustinian cohort named Julius. And embarking on a ship of uh, Adramitum, which was about to sail for the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Um, So here we... See, Paul is about to go to Rome at long last. He's about to be delivered to Rome, and he's been entrusted to this uh, centurion, and uh, apparently with other prisoners. And, and Craig Keener says that he thinks a lot of the prisoners weren't going to see Nero, but were probably going to see the Colosseum to be um, a part of the games. So they embark on this ship, 
going to Adramantium, which you can see is just on the northern edge of the Aegean Sea, on the western side of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Um, so this would have been a, uh, a merchant ship traveling to back home. And um, it wasn't a Roman fleet, but Roman um, soldiers could, could kind of commandeer passage for free on merchant ships. And so they pile on, and you see accompanying Paul are Aristarchus and Luke. Again, notice the we's in this passage. Luke is accompanying him, and it's interesting that they allow a prisoner to accompany or be accompanied by friends, but one, either they purchase fare because it's a merchant ship, or because of Paul, the nature of Paul's case, perhaps they were allowed to accompany him on the ship. And so they take off toward Rome, ultimately. They, they put in at Sidon, which is just a little bit to the north, and... Um, so we read that in verse 3. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. And there we, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Um, so we've seen this many times that Paul is allowed to have access to his friends. Prisoners were reliant on their friends and Julius was, was caring for him. And um, because of the nature of his case not being serious, he allowed him to visit his friends in Sidon. Um, and then they begin traveling north and westward. And at this point, we remember as Paul traveled toward Palestine on the way there, there were these prevailing westward, westward winds that caused a quick journey, but now the same westward winds are against them. So it's a very slow and painful journey. And that's why it says that they were under the lee of Cyprus, the lee meaning the the opposite of the windward shore, which would allow them some calm as they traveled. As they travel, they're hugging the coast of southern Turkey, and likely they're doing something called tacking, which you see on the map. Is a, there's a squiggly line, so if you're going to sail into the wind, you can't sail with wind in your sails directly into the wind. You have to tack back and forth, which would make a painfully slow journey. As they arrive in Myra um, on the southern shore, on the western side of Turkey, um, they find another merchant ship from Alexandria. This would have been bearing wheat from Alexandria to Rome, and the centurion puts them aboard this ship. And then in verse 7, And we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon, Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair, Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Um, so Snidus is, again, further west off of a, a long peninsula on the southern southwest corner of, of modern-day Turkey. And as they're going along, past Snidus is basically the Aegean Sea. And that's where they just hit a wall of wind. They can go no farther. They, so they have to turn south toward Crete. And again, they encounter the lee of Crete, the leeward side, away from the wind, which gives them some shelter from the wind. 
and they cross past Salmon there and then turn the corner around to the southern side of, of Crete, still in the lee of Crete, probably because the winds were probably from the northwest. Um, but he says it was slow going. Perhaps they were tacking. Perhaps there was still some prevailing wind or perhaps they were just kind of fighting a current or something. But they arrive at Fair Havens. Um, then in verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the feast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there and on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Um, So when he says that the fast, excuse me, the fast was over, that's the Day of Atonement. And uh, Daryl Bach is helpful here. He says, Uh, We are in the fall of late September and October, just before the winter months when sea travel would be especially perilous. If the year is AD 59, we are reaching mid-October, since the fast would have started in October 5. Uh, Sea travel was normally not undertaken after mid-September and was avoided from November to mid-March. The expression, Mary Clossum, the sea is closed, mark this period. So because of the length of their journey, they have to tack and they have to fight the wind. Um, now they've passed the feast day and they're getting into the very, very dangerous period to be in the Mediterranean. Uh, Paul, Paul, it's unusual, but perhaps that he would speak up here as a prisoner to sailors and to soldiers. But also we have to remember he was very wise and at this point a very seasoned uh, sea traveler and so he had some reason to speak up and he seemed here it seems like he's speaking primarily in verse 11 to the centurion um, he perhaps has his ear and uh, the centurion it seems uh, listens more to to the owner of the ship to the captain of the pilot than he does to Paul and they vote or who, whomever has that authority says we need to go on to Phoenix despite Paul's advice um, they thought Fairhaven was unsuitable, so we're going to go to Phoenix, um, which is just a little farther to the west, which on our map is just a very tiny thing. But you'll notice that the coast turns hard to the north after Fairhaven's, and it creates this gulf. That's about a 10, 12-mile um, northern. The shore goes north about 10 or 12 miles, and it creates this gulf, this gulf of Masara. And so rounding that corner, you are again exposing yourself to the wind and you have to cross that gulf to get to to Phoenix. Um, Also, incidentally, right there where the gulf is on land, there's an 8000 foot peak, Mount Ida. So then going on in verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. 
So they have this gentle south wind. They think, okay, we can make it, which is just the calm before the storm. And suddenly winds blow down from Mount Ida. They shift directions from south to northeast, which is the worst possible direction, blowing them out to sea. Um, so they would have been, at this point, trying to, to fight into the wind, but at a certain point they couldn't anymore, and they just gave way to it. They had to turn and just what, what sailors call scud. They're just blown along by the wind. Then verse 16, running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the uh, uh, Sartus, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So this island, Kauda, they're being blown uh, north, south, west at this point, And they end up in the lee of this little island. Apparently there's no place for them to land. And they're kind of scrambling to, to get set up for the continuing to be blown across the, the sea. Um, and there's three things that they do. They pull in the boat. So apparently there's a small boat, like a lifeboat type dinghy. And uh, typically that would be tr- pulled behind the ship. Um, and oftentimes perhaps even there would be somebody riding in that, but it's probably filling with water. So they pull it aboard with much difficulty. Um, and then he says they undergird the ship, which I did not understand at first. And still people are not quite sure what that means, but it's probably something called frapping. They would take cords and wrap them essentially underneath the bow of the ship to hold, get ready to hold it together. Kind of like we would put on our, our chains before going over the mountain pass, right? We're, pu- we're trying to hold the boat together with these big cables. The third thing they do is lower the gear, which is also a question mark of what that means. Um, some tra- translations say that essentially they were raising the sail, which is the exact opposite of what you would want to do and what they did do. It probably meant bringing everything possible down to the deck. And especially probably um, the main yard or the main horizontal beam and bring it down. Um, and so it says that they were uh, fearful of the Sartus, um, which is down off the course uh, off of North Africa. So they would have actually, to be blown into that, they would have had to drift for probably 400 miles. But they were fearful of drifting there because these are great sandbars that were kind of a ship graveyard, and they did not want to be blown that way. And so they probably had something called storm sails, and again, began tacking, and rather than being blown toward the Sardis, they began tacking to the starboard side toward the west. Um, And this would have been more violent. So you can imagine that the waves are wanting to carry them this way, and they're crossing the waves this way. So that's why Luke says they were storm-tossed and began to jettison the cargo. Uh, Interesting, Daryl Bach says, Ecclesiastes 3.6, a targum on that verse says, there is a time for throwing a thing into the sea, namely the time of a tempest. (laughs) 
Um, and this to throw cargo into the sea would have been a multi-day project. So these ships, these uh, cargo ships, at minimum would hold 68 tons and up to 1,200. They guess this one at this size would have been about 250 tons of wheat. So this is a multi-day project. You can imagine being a sailor, being storm-tossed. Your job is for days trying to haul cargo, bags of wheat, and throw them off the ship. Of course, they would not have thrown all cargo. We learn a little bit later they left some for ballast or perhaps for food. Um, and then it says that they threw off um, the, the leftover gear as well. They threw the tackle overboard with their own hands, which again is probably anything they didn't absolutely need to stay alive sailing-wise, including perhaps even that main yard, which would have been as long as the ship and a, a real chore to throw overboard with your own hands. So this speaks to us of the despair that they had, that they were throwing everything they had just to stay alive. This is where we see again Luke's theme throughout Acts of Christ's providence in the face of the absolute impossible. In verse 20, it says, Neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, and all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Christ's providence in the midst of the impossible circumstances. Anxiety here is is prevailing. We see this in verse 21, that they wouldn't even eat. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So here Paul begins, and he begins almost, it sounds like he's saying, I told you so. You should have listened to me. But really he's establishing his credibility by saying, I told you this would happen, and you didn't listen. And you can kind of imagine at this point, Paul is drifting out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and his companions are with him, and it's almost... He knows by this point God's going to get him through it, but okay, God, how are you going to get me out of this one? Now before he said that they would lose the ship and the the cargo and their lives, and now he's saying, actually, we won't lose our lives. Um, And that's because the first address was not um, from revelation. It was just wisdom. Paul was a wise sailor and says, this is foolish. We're going to lose our lives. And now he's saying, but God in his mercy has told me that all of us are going to survive this ordeal. So he tells them, take heart. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. I just wonder how many of the men were actually heartened by this message or how many ignored Paul 
Paul's credibility increases with them clearly through this story, but most of these men probably were pagans, didn't know God, Paul's God, and so some of them perhaps were still in fear. Okay, Paul, nice idea, but here we are in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. But sure enough, in verse 27, when the 14th, 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors expected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes from the ship's boat and let it go. You just imagine this 14 days adrift in a tempest across the Mediterranean Sea from Crete to Malta, where they end up landing is 475 miles drift. The sailors are uh, keenly attuned to land. They're skilled sailors, so they suspect there's land. And apparently you could tell by either sound or smell. You could smell a certain smell coming off, but at this point the wind's blowing the wrong direction. So it's probably they heard breakers crashing on the land. Um, and so they start taking soundings. They lower lead weights down with ropes, and apparently sometimes they'd put grease on the bottom of the weights to tell what the, the bottom of the uh, sea looked like, what it was composed of, and, and they are going along, and at first it's 20 fathoms, which is about the height of a man, 6 feet, and then a little farther on they found 15 fathoms. A fathom is the height of a man, I should say. Um, and as they're doing this, and they... they Uh, are fearful that they're going to run aground on the rocks. And so they lower anchors to slow themselves down and just hope that day will come before they crash against the rocks. Some sailors get a wise idea. They think we can pretend we're lowering down anchors while we're lowering down the boat. We can escape and get away ourselves. And Paul says, no, we're in this together. Our hope is here on this ship where God said we would be saved. He says, if they go, we're all going down. And you can see that Paul's credibility has at this point been established with the soldiers because they essentially run over and cut the ropes, leaving the boat behind. And in 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, and having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for you will give, it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. He's saying to them, prepare to disembark. Enough with with the lack of hope. Get ready to disembark, which is going to be the most strenuous disembarkation they've ever endured. It's interesting. He doesn't just say, 
get on your knees and, and pray that, that God brings us in. He's concerned for their whole person, for encouragement and strengthening for their bodies. Like he told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. The relationship between body and soul, you, you, you can think about uh, somebody taking warm soup and a blanket after a serious accident. It warms the soul as well. Be prepared, be encouraged, be strengthened for this disembarkation. God is going to save us. He says they were encouraged. He leads them in this meal, and the, the verbiage sounds a little bit like communion, but this is a ship of unbelievers. It's not a worship service or a communion service. Um, but they eat bread, and they're thankful. And 276 men, for them, hope is restored in an impossible situation. Would God's, Would Paul's God see them through? And it's looking more and more like he will. In verse 38, and when he had eaten enough, when they, when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the weed into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So they, they, they're going to make a run for it. They have hope restored. They're going to try to, to run aground, as God had told them to do through Paul. And so they're lightening the load because the ship rides higher and perhaps a little bit faster in preparation to do what, what had been said. And they spot this bay on the beach. They don't know the area. They don't know if there's ports around, but they see this bay. And so they're going to run aground on the sandy bay. Um, and so they say, this is it. This is our last ditch effort. We're not sailing anymore. We cut the ropes to the anchors. We leave them behind. They, they raise the foresail, which is not the big sail, but just a small one in the front. And they, they begin making a run for the sandy bay. It's after all that's happened at this point in the story, it's almost like we can breathe a sigh of relief. They're going to run aground on a bay and be fine. And then wham, they slam into a reef and the, the bow is lodged and won't come loose. And the waves, the breakers are rolling in, crashing against the stern of the ship, breaking it apart. And then there's one last hurdle here to Paul's survival and his trip to Rome in 42. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. At least then he should swim away and escape. But the centurion wishing, wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now this is not just... Roman bloodthirst or something that they want to kill the prisoners, but this is preservation of their own lives. If they let the prisoners escape, they would be killed. And after all of this, you can kind of sympathize why they would think, after all this, I don't want to die. I don't want to hang because these prisoners escaped. But the centurion wants to save Paul, perhaps out of appreciation, perhaps because he's seen the power of this God and he is fearful of him. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This, this is nothing short of a miracle. 
276 persons adrift across the middle of the Mediterranean, and not one person perished, exactly as Paul had been told. Now, what are we to make of this story? It's interesting, in 2 Corinthians 11, a letter predating this event by four years, Paul says himself that he had been shipwrecked three times and spent a whole day and night adrift at sea. That Luke doesn't record any of these shipwrecks. Perhaps it's just because Luke is with him on this journey. He's he's a first-hand witness. But I think that this narrative has more of a purpose than merely sharing an epic experience that they had, which you can imagine all these 276 get home to their families. What a story this would be for them and their children for many years. It is a great story, but there's purpose to the story as well in the flow of the book of Acts. A few themes and purposes come to mind here first. um, Commentators note that For many of the ancients, to survive a shipwreck at sea was an indication of innocence. This has been a theme through the last few chapters of Paul's trials. His innocence. Roman officials, Felix, Festus, Lysias, Agrippa, they've all testified. Even the Jewish officials have had to admit that they have nothing to pin on Paul. And now, as as Bach says, now God and the creation speaks to his innocence by having him survive a life-threatening test. And we can add to this, in the coming story, Paul is bitten by a venomous snake and survives the same kind of um, attestation. In and of itself, of course, survival means nothing with respect to innocence. Plenty of wicked people survive bad things and bad people die or good people die, innocent people die of bad things. But in context here, it seems to be viewed this way, particularly as the narrative includes active divine intervention to save Paul. So it's a reasonable point to draw from the passage. And, And for Theophilus, the audience, and for us, Paul, we have to again conclude that he is a genuine apostle, a genuine messenger of the one true living God who is for him. And he's providentially protecting him by the living Christ. And therefore, we do well to listen to this apostle who survived the shipwreck. Another purpose here. Second one is the the historicity of the the account. This is an obvious one. That that Luke is a reliable historical witness for Theophilus and for us and for all who would come after. Uh, Unbelieving and liberal theologians are willing to grant that the Bible contains truth or that we have much to learn about the psyche of man and the nature of the human struggle from the Bible. But Luke presents his stories as concrete history. It's interesting, much of the detail that I learned about this passage came from a book I highly recommend. It's very fascinating, written in uh, 1848 by James Smith. He was a scientist, a nautical researcher, and a yachtsman. And uh, the book is entitled The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul. He had a chance to live on Malta for a time and to have interchange with experienced sailors about the, the very nature of of the Mediterranean Sea 
and uh, sailing in it. And long story short, the, the details of Luke's account check out so well. He is meticulous and precise, and he was clearly a man who was on this journey. Again, he proves himself over and over again like this in the book of Acts. Which means that, like Paul, we belong to and worship a God that is not a theoretical God, but a God who really lives, who promises, who fulfills, who saves, who enters history and time and actively and providentially brings salvation to those who are his. The Bible is not just a series of stories that we can learn from, but it is an anchor for the soul in real events in which God entered into history. And he continues to unfold those implications in our own day. A third purpose here of this story is that, as we have seen over and over again, Christ's mission and Christ's promises will press on in the face of opposition. I believe it's been shown that Luke is is presenting something of of a cosmic battle between the forces of evil and the risen, ascended Christ in this book. And whether this tempest was just the direct hand of God or whether Satan had something to do with it, it was ultimately God and his providence. We do see in Job that Satan caused the wind to blow against the house of celebration of, of, of Job's children and killed his children. Certainly this could be yet one more attempt to thwart the plan of Christ to see Paul going to Rome to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yet, it is all within Christ's plan. Using the strength and the impossibility of the opposing situation to show his own strength and his own power. It's interesting the way that the sailors, and particularly the Roman soldiers, progressively learn to listen to Paul throughout this story. It's amazing. For all they've been through, that they, they might run aground on this postage stamp of an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Of all places, they're being blown across. They don't know where they're going, and they hit Malta, which, by the way, there's nothing around. And it's amazing, it's a miracle that not a single person of 276 people perished. After being adrift in a storm for two weeks, going 475 miles, crashing the ship on a reef with breakers strong enough to beat the ship to pieces, and every last soul made it to shore. This is Christ's hand. The strength of the opposition only serves to demonstrate his own strength. Paul will go to Rome. He will testify there. I think also here there is a nod to the Great Commission once again and the phrase to the ends of the earth. They're to bring the gospel to the end of the earth. This is a fairly common uh, observation, but for a Palestinian Jew, this is the farthest west Paul has ever been (laughs) being blown across the Mediterranean Sea. It's almost as if any farther, much farther, he would have been blown off the edge of the earth. Of course, he has his sights set on even farther west in Spain. But it's no coincidence that Acts begins with the Great Commission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
And then it leaves us hanging at the very end with Paul in Rome. And it says, these are the last verses of Acts. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Of course, there's more to come for the story. But for that generation, that was the ends of the earth, the success of the gospel. Jesus will be stopped by nothing. And this event and its accounting intend to show us this. Fourth observation, then, about the purpose of this narrative is similar, that we can expect life in the way of the gospel is not going to be free from adversity. We still fight against the same enemy. Christ continues to display his strength in our weakness and adversity. Rarely in, in the Bible and redemptive history and church history has Christ conquered through just direct, obvious military strength. Rather, sometimes on Sunday nights we sing, The Son of God Goes Forth to War, a great hymn. It's about victory through martyrdom. The first verse is about Jesus as, as the first one. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar, who follows in his train. Who best can drink his cup of woe, triumph over pain. Who patient bears his cross below, he follows in his train. We see this in Paul in the Second Corinthians 12, 9-10. But he said to me, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christ works through our weakness. That doesn't mean, by the way, I had a friend tell me in seminary, we should pray for persecution. Um, no, <laughs> we should pray like Jesus taught us. Lead us not into temptation. And the word there is actually probably better translated trials. But deliver us from the evil one. We'd rather avoid being blown across the Mediterranean in a tempest if we can help it. We should never seek persecution, or martyrdom, or suffering, or difficulty, but we should expect it. The New Testament depicts the Christian life as walking on the path of the cross. So we should expect adversity. And the fifth and final purpose, I think, there are many more purposes, but for now... The final purpose is just to say that salvation is of the Lord. Just read again, 22, starting from 22. Yet now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 
how quick we are to act like the sailors who wanted to launch the small boat into the sea to avoid God's plan of grounding the ship. But Paul is emphatic. This ship is the only place God is providing salvation. Things may feel like a sinking ship for us sometimes, but it is God's sinking ship. So will we learn to stand on the, on the pitch deck of promise before we launch the dinghy of self-salvation into the violent breakers of the world? I just, I love how the soldiers respond. Cut the dinghy. Trust wholly in the Lord. Put your eggs in that basket. We're reminded, of course, during the story of Jonah, who learned this lesson that God, that salvation is of the Lord the hard way. He was battered by the sea, cast into the waves, swallowed and vomited up by a whale. And in the last phrase of his prayer in chapter 2 on the beach, he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. I wonder if some or many of the sailors aboard the ship responded like the pagan sailors did with Jonah. They turned and began to sacrifice to Yahweh, the one true and living God. God saw them through in the last phrase of our passage. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Salvation is of the Lord, even in the impossible. So the lesson in this passage is really very simple, and it's the lesson of the whole Bible. Believe God. Believe God. It will be done exactly as we have been told. Amen.